RadioInfluence.com. Law and order and securing the border are the topics we'll delve into in this episode of United Patriots Uprising with Gary Benford. I'm your host, Gary Benford. Thanks for joining us. You would think that law enforcement and securing our southern border would be givens, no-brainers, in a free society. Sadly, that isn't the case anymore. So in this podcast, we'll break down why we find ourselves spiraling down this destructive rabbit hole, as well as providing possible solutions with a trio of former high-level officials, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark, ICE Director Ron Vitello, and Mike Cutler, Senior Special Agent at the former Immigration and Naturalization Services. This podcast is available on RadioInfluence.com or your favorite podcast platform. A great way to show your support is by subscribing to this podcast. Give it a rating and leave a review and be sure to tell your friends about the broadcast. The next show is scheduled to air on Tuesday, October 26th with guests Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, Mike Lindell, John DeLemme, Lucretia Hughes, and Sean Farish breaking down what we the people can do to help save America. By subscribing, podcasts will be sent to you so you won't have to search for them. I was raised in suburban New Jersey, Summit to be exact, during a time in which people actually would leave the doors to their homes unlocked, sometimes even when they weren't there. And it wasn't uncommon to leave your car unlocked. Sounds like Twilight Zone stuff? Right. Sadly, at this place in time, it is. The number of people who don't feel safe and secure in their homes, in their communities, on their streets, in our country, is astoundingly ascending. So, it would stand to reason that looking at law enforcement officers as the enemy, to the absurd extent of wanting to defund the police, and leaving open our southern border where terrorists, sex traffickers, drug cartels, you name it, get a free pass into our nation, would be unthinkable in the perilous times we live. Shockingly, that isn't the case. So I felt compelled to deal with these issues while we still have times to do something about it. Protecting law and order and securing our borders should be naturally expected that factions are working to push the needle in the other direction, wars against our constitution, and is designed to rob us of even more freedom and liberty. We can't allow this to happen, America. So let's get into it. Just imagine an America where everyone lives on the honor system. No courts, no jails, no police. Since we're such good people, We'll police ourselves. Our communities will be the police. Yeah, right. But if you take the very real war on police, which includes the absurd notion of defunding the police, to its logical conclusion, that's eventually where we may end up. How do you think that would uh, work, America? Is that the America you want to live in? Is that an America we could live in? I don't know about you, but I don't want any part of that. So we better deal with this anti-police bias, which is fueled by a globalist agenda many Americans aren't even aware of, 
while we still have time to do something about it. And to talk about this, we're going to bring on the people's sheriff. He was the sheriff of Milwaukee County from 2002 to 2017. And that's in Wisconsin, if you didn't know. He was a frequent guest on Fox News shows, a speaker at the 2016 Republican National Convention, a vocal supporter of President Trump, and a senior advisor and spokesperson previously to the Super PAC America First Action. Right now, he has a nonprofit grassroots called Rise Up Wisconsin, Inc., which will explain to us what that's about. And he's the author of the best-selling books, Cops Under Fire, Moving Beyond Hashtags of Race, Crime, and Politics for a Better America. I am uh, I'm very happy to bring to the show a man who calls a spade a spade and does it in spades. Welcome to the show, Sheriff David A. Clark Jr. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on with you, and uh, I'm humbled by that introduction. Well, you deserve that introduction. And let me tell you something. Thank you very much for those kind words. I used to love watching you on Fox because the one thing to me as as a as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and I used to be a Democrat and bought all the, you know, I'm black and I bought all the, the, the Kool-Aid back before I got saved in 1997. But once that happened, I became about a man about truth. And anybody that is going to put out the truth and put it out in mega doses like you do. I have tremendous respect for. So here's my first question. I grew up in the 50s as a kid and I'm watching, you know, all these TV shows, a lot were in black and white back in the day. And it would always end up like the bad guys would be doing all this stuff and it wouldn't matter if it was gun smoke or if it was the detective shows, it wouldn't matter what it was. The bad guys would be doing all this stuff. But at the end, we just felt so comfortable in knowing before that show ended, the police or the sheriff of the town or whoever was in charge of law and order would save the day and good would prevail. Would prevail. Please tell us what the heck happened to that America. Yeah, our world is upside down right now. It really is. Uh, up is down and, and in is out. And what I think happened over time uh, because there's a gradual uh, slide toward this thing, uh, sliding, slouching toward Gomorrah, as I like to call it. Um, there's a lack of morality. We don't have standards of conduct anymore. It's an anything goes society. It's a do as you please, do as you want to do with impunity, no accountability. Uh, people can decide, you know, crazy stuff like, well, I don't want to be a man. I want to be a woman. And we just kind of like, have allowed this stuff that used to be shunned and shamed and ridiculed, but we've allowed it to become uh, normal behavior, and it's had devastating consequences, uh, not only to the country, but uh, will for a long time with future generations. I, I hear you, Sheriff Clark, and, and what kind of caught my attention was back my senior year in high school, like in 1969, there seemed to be this radical shift before there used to be a respect for authority, a respect for parents, a respect for teachers. And all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, at least to me, because I wasn't politically inclined back growing up in Summit, New Jersey, all of a sudden people, the kids started calling the police pigs. And I had no clue where that came from. But as you say, the breakdown in, in morality has led to a breakdown in everything. There's lack of respect for parents, lack of respect for authority, lack of respect 
for police. How bad is this problem right now? Well, it's horrible. It's horrendous. And uh, you make a very good point there. Uh, it led to the breakdown of, of the family unit, the family structure. And that, I believe, is at the heart of this. Again, the family structure, you know, with a, a mom and dad and, and, and kids, uh, it was a cultural norm. And when the family in, in the late 60s is when this happened, mid 60s, late 60s, with the the uh, liberal ideology of the great society, uh, the removal of the father from the home had devastating consequences, especially for and at the time, this is where this was happening, happening, the black community. And at the time in, in the 1960s, I think 70 percent of all children in the black community were born into a two parent home, solid structure. And uh, that has now dropped to about 20 percent. So you have these kids growing up in these chaotic environments, dysfunctional environments, no father in the home. And the significance of the father in the home is there's a role for the father in this society. Fathers are responsible for the socialization of their young boys. And some of the behaviors we see at a younger age now, you know, a 15 year old uh, arrested for a drive by shooting and a homicide. And we're seeing this at younger ages because these kids are undisciplined. So you have them growing up in these single family environments. And I'm not here to suggest that uh, some single parents uh, don't do a good job of raising their kids. They do some. But the, 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 the fact of the reality is that you're working against the odds and the data and the research shows that a child has a better chance of becoming a full functioning adult uh, with the guidance of a mother and a father in a stable environment. You know, that is so on point, and, and I, I can use my life as proof. When I was growing up, when I was a, a teenager in the late 60s, the reason that I stayed out of trouble was not because I feared going to jail or I feared getting caught or something. What I feared was shaming my parents because that was back in the day where there were two parents in most black homes. That was back in the day where everybody went to church. And the one thing I did not want was for my parents and the community of Summit, New Jersey, to see me being carried into police car with my hands behind my back, handcuffed, knowing people are going to be in that Wally and Ola's son, Gary. How did they raise that boy? Look at that boy. What the heck? I, I, I did not want to shame my parents by being arrested. Yet that is totally blown sky high and you nailed it. If you don't have fathers in the home, if there's not a father and a strong role model to raise the kids, the streets will raise your kids. Is that part of what's going on? Without a doubt. The, the virtue of respect and respect is a virtue. Um, which means a redeeming quality. That's what a virtue is. Uh, that's instilled in, in young people and kids at a very early age. And when you don't have that figure that is continually um, putting that stamp down of respect, you're going to respect authority. I learned respect from my father. My father was my first authority figure. I respected my father, and the motivation doesn't matter. A lot of it was fear, not because my father was, was mean or anything, but I'll tell you what. Uh, he made it very clear the standards that were going to go on inside that house, what he was going to expect of me, and that there would be consequences if I got way off the track. So from there, when I went to school at a young age, 
that a sense of authority carried over to the teacher. So the teacher then, when I came into that classroom in that school, took on the authority of my father. And so I respected the teacher in the same way. Now, the teacher, it wasn't uh, his or her sole responsibility to continue that discipline, but that teacher had an outlet. And it wasn't to call the police when I was disruptive in class. It was to call my father. So you see how this domino effect, when I was walking through the neighborhood, you know who else carried the respect of my father? The adults in the neighborhood. There you go. Words, if the neighbor said to me, hey, get off my lawn, do this, do get out of the street, you know, so on and so forth. I did it because I knew, hey, that's my dad talking. And I knew that if I didn't or if, you know, we were a different tight knit society back then. But at the same time, I learned respect for authority at a very early age. Today, these kids growing up, they don't respect uh, the mom, usually the mom. They don't respect the parents. They don't respect their teachers. That whole uh, downward slide that I talk about continues. They don't respect the teacher. They don't respect any uh, adult in the neighborhood. And as a result, you know, this this lack of respect for authority. Now who has to deal with it today? The police. Right. And and I, I know the language you're speaking, because when I was coming home, the people in the neighborhood, the neighbors, they had the right to discipline me and reprimand me. And I knew if I got it from them, they would never lay their hands on me. But they 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 set they me straight. To. Right. They set me straight. And by the time I got home, they'd already called my parents. And boy, now, you know, it's coming. But this is what saved us. Now, the problem is I'm just you got to You got to This is just so hard for me to wrap my my hand head around. They know in the neighborhood you get you have the gang problem, you have the drug problem, you have the crime problem, especially in neighborhoods. It doesn't matter whether black or white, but especially in the black neighborhoods in the projects, you have these issues. They know the only person that can protect your grandmother from getting knocked in the head and have her purse stolen coming back from church are the police. Why is it this so this anti-police bias? They know they're the only ones that can protect you from the gangs. And yet it's such anti-police bias that you got to be real to the streets. You can't snitch, as they would call you. You can't even tell anybody. Or is it just they're really afraid for the protection? Well, peer pressure. And you know what that is and you know what that can do, especially an impressionable uh, young person. You know, they want to belong. And, you know, if they are in the streets and they are hanging out with certain people, they want acceptance from that group, the end group, I call it. They don't want to be a part of the out group, the ones that, you know, shun that sort of behavior and go the other way. Um, and, and so because of that, you know, we teach people to hate. We teach kids. I say people, kids. They're not born that way. They're not born totally with a lack of respect, but we we instill that in them. And that's what I, why I mentioned that, that respect is a virtue. A virtue is a redeeming quality. These things have to be instilled in people. So the 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 values or the cultural rot, I like to call it, is being instilled by the streets, you know, to hate the police. Uh, you use force and intimidation to take property. You use force and intimidation to control turf uh, in the neighborhood. You take property by force, uh, you know, those sorts of things that become, you know, the norm. That's the street norm. And, and so these kids grow up not knowing any different until finally one day, when they've gone too far over the edge and they've done a robbery, uh, they possessed a firearm, you know, at 15, 16 years old, they uh, did a drive-by shooting and, and, and even, you know, committed a murder. 
And then, you, you know, we look and we say to ourselves, you know, where did society go wrong? And I go, no, 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 no. Society did not do that. Ineffective parenting. Where was the parent? Where were the parents? Where was the mom? It's usually just the mom. Or if it's a dad, too, where were the mom and dad? Oftentimes when I was, um, when I do TV and I'm asked to comment on some of the behavior of these young people, my first question is, who raised these miscreants? There you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're right on there. And and this is the problem. Now, on this show, we talk a lot about Marxism. We talk a lot about cultural Marxism. And one of the things that I always use on every show is uh, W. Clan Skousen's book, The Naked Communist, written not this decade, not two decades ago, but in 1958. And the goals of the Naked Communists about how they wanted to take over the country. And as you talked about before, one of the goals was to to get uh, to destroy morality, to destroy the family, to 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 get control of radio, television, motion pictures and and the news media and everything they've done. They have broken down the society to the point now where the people who are supposed to keep us safe are now looked upon as the enemies. Then they also want to take away the guns because Karl Marx knew you first have to get rid of the church because either people will look to a benevolent God or they'll look to government, but not both. And then you need to take the guns away, as people know in Cuba and about finding out now in Venezuela, if they have your weapons, when you want to take your country back, you know, and you can look at Mao and Stalin and everything, you, you have no choice. This is the rabbit hole we're going down, and the the, the, the police are caught right in the crossfire here, how bad is this anti-cop sentiment and how serious should we take this defund the police movement? <laughs> well, you better take it very seriously. And, and how bad is it, this anti-police sentiment in the United States in certain uh, segments of, of our society, mainly the ghetto, uh, these urban centers, the um, evidence, I think, to, to demonstrate how bad this is. Look at the crime rates. Look at the rising crime rates. Uh, I was talking about it on, on Newsmax TV, where I'm a contributor now. I was talking about it this morning. In 2020, there were 1.2 million violent crimes in the United States. Those violent crime categories by the FBI, uniform crime reporting, are murders, uh, aggravated assaults, which are non-fatal shootings, robberies, and rape. That means 1.2 million victims of crime. Also, in 2020, uh, murders were up across the United States by 30% for heaven's sakes. That means more uh, uh, dead people. Many of those people were just law-abiding people who got caught in a crossfire, had gotten away. And that is the single highest increase in murders in recorded history in the United States. So wow. when you say how serious should we take this, you know, the thing that uh, that really strikes me is, is you know, mainly all we really get is a shoulder shrug about this. You know, we hear these stories in Milwaukee. As a matter of fact, this past Sunday, yesterday, an 11-year-old was murdered. A 5-year-old was shot while sitting in a car in a drive-by shooting. Uh, uh, murders are up exponentially in Milwaukee, Chicago, uh, L.A., Philadelphia, all of your large urban centers. And, you know, you just, you, you I, I, for the life of me, can't understand why there's not more of a demand, not just outrage, because outrage isn't going to help it, but more of a demand 
that our elected officials stop with this nonsense of being anti-police for short political gain, stop with this defund movement, stop with this abolish movement, and get back to serving law-abiding people. They're supposed to be on the side of law-abiding people, but right now they've crawled into bed uh, with the anti-police movement and mainly in the form of Antifa and Black Lives Matter. I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly where we're about to go. You know, when you look at what you just said, whenever there's, and it breaks your heart, somebody, a kid's just caught in a crossfire, just somebody in their home, they go, the bullet goes through the gang war, going to a bedroom, whatever. You're sitting in a car and you're gone. You don't see Black Lives Matter over there. You don't see Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Really Matter at the abortion clinic. You don't see Black Lives Matter trying to protect their streets and holding rallies and telling people to stop killing black people because the majority of blacks are killed by blacks. You don't see that. But let one George Floyd or Michael Brown or something happen and all hell breaks loose. Please tell people. Right. Go ahead. You know, it's interesting because in the city of Chicago, and I don't want to just pick on Chicago because it's not just in Chicago. I already slapped my own city around. Uh, a little bit because it's happening in all these urban centers that have a ghetto. But uh, you're right about uh, Black Lives Matter because if, you know, first of all, and you mentioned it, it's a Marxist movement. Okay, that's all it is. They do not Mm -hmm. care about black people. What they care about is political power, for heaven's sakes. If Black Lives Matter truly believed that black life matters, they would be protesting Every single weekend in front of an abortion clinic, in front of Planned Parenthood, that is responsible for the murder of more black people than anybody else could want to be. In 2014, it's not that long ago, in the city of New York, there were more black babies murdered through abortion than were born, for heaven's sakes. So why isn't Black Lives Matter protesting if they thought black life really mattered in front of an abortion uh, clinic, Planned Parenthood. And another example is, you're right, with all of this urban crime, with all of this street violence, and in Chicago, and they become the poster child. That's why I keep bringing them up. Uh, the numbers are staggering out of Chicago. But it, by the way, murder's up 300% just in 2021. Wow. But if Black Lives Matter truly believed that Black Lives Matter, they would be in the streets. They would be in the streets helping, helping to return these these communities to some sense of norm, to some sense of normalcy, and they're not. They're nowhere to be found. The only people who truly believe that black life matters is the American police officer who is down in these areas every day risking their lives for who? Other black people. You're so right about that, and I'm gonna, I wanna comment on that, but I do wanna make a comment on what you just said uh, uh, pertaining to what Black Lives Matter does. People go on their website. They're against a nuclear family. Notice where former Sheriff Clark started this. He started this about morality. He started this about lack of fathers in the home. If you don't know what the nuclear family is, the nuclear family was ordained by God to have a father and a mother in the home. They want to break that up. Why? Because the breakup of the family structure leads to this Marxist takeover and you say, well, what what does the family have to do with it? The family has to do with it. If there's no father in the home and the woman has all these kids and has to raise them herself, who's going to be her daddy? The government. That's what this is all about. So they say, hey, 
The police, there's this inordinate amount of crime and arresting all these black people. But isn't it just a matter of the fact is the police go where the crime is, right? Precisely. Uh, And they should be arresting all of these black people that are involved in this. There's a thing in this country called due process. People are entitled to due process. So if you're charged with a crime, accused of a crime, there's a process that the government has to go through in order to prosecute you. You get a lawyer if you can't afford one. Unlike some of these other Marxist countries where they have political prisoners, they'll throw you in prison and in jail for a long period of time because you oppose the government, something that simple. Um, so, you know, when you, when you look at these things and, and, and it's a it's a, a snowball effect, uh, if you will. And like you said, the police go where the crime is. The statistics, you know, it bears it, bears it out. They're, they're embarrassing. But it's the truth and it's reality that the overwhelming majority of um, suspects involved in the murder and in the non-fatal shootings of black people is another black person. And the same with some of these other crimes. And then when you if you want to use the left that likes to do this, the uh, disparate impact, uh, disparate, I'm sorry, disparate impact. Blacks make up about 13 percent of the population, but also make up about 60 percent of suspects in uh, in street violence. So we need to begin to ask ourselves as a black community, we, we have to do this. We have to self-correct here and we have to ask what happened to the family unit? What's it going to take to be able to put this family unit back together? It's not going to be the government. It's not going to be a government grant. It's not going to be more welfare programs. It's going to be the hard work, first of all, of turning away from these things that we start to embrace like single uh, parent homes. We start to embrace this stuff now as a cultural norm. No, it's not because it doesn't work. These are time-tested uh, uh, standards and, and norms, cultural norms, going back to the beginning of time, that you got to have a stable environment in order to raise a family, a productive family, a stable family, and it takes the hard work of two people. Now, sometimes, and you know this, you know, things don't go right and people divorce. That's fine. But that does not mean, because that's not what we're talking about here. This isn't a matter of divorce. This is a matter of nobody was ever, no father was ever involved from the beginning. But you still have an obligation to contribute to the, the uh, upbringing and the development of that child. You still have an obligation financially, you know, to support that child. And yet people today, you know, we talked about it. You can just walk away. There's no there, there, there's no there's conduct without borders. You can just walk away right now and someone else will pick up the slack. And no matter how hard you try, government will never be able to fill the void right. left by a uh, uh, no father in the home. All right. Uncle Sam might be good at some stuff, but Uncle Sam makes a horrible father. Uncle Sam is now uh, engaged in activities that still have not helped and as a matter of fact have made it worse like you know who provides for a roof over the home of the, the kids and the family right uncle sam who provides for food on the table uncle sam but like i said you know this stuff has not worked and instead of saying to ourselves from from a, a public policy perspective that hey you know what these programs aren't working you know we do we say well it's not that they're not working we're not spending enough money so they pour good money after bad you have these 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 programs that are actually contributing to the problem, and yet we keep on doing it. 
Yeah, and, and this this is absolute lunacy. And something you have to understand, people. First off, the welfare state destroyed is a, a black America because what it did. First off, you can't have a man in the home. You can't work, and the more kids you get, the bigger your check. So what did that do? That turned black men into predators. So and and took away exactly what you said. The responsibility that that men like would be raised by their fathers, become responsible adults. So all they're doing is pregnating guys and, and living on the streets. And you wonder why they end up in the jail. See that process. And then you go back to Margaret Sanger, who started Planned Parenthood. She was for the genocide of blacks. She she would be the vice president of Black Lives Matter if she was alive today. She'd be pouring the money in there, you know, because, hey, they're, they're doing they're helping her her program. This this stuff is absolutely totally wrong and and it's evil uh along these lines let's get to why this is going on because every time something breaks out and you can tell me if you think i'm wrong here obviously i say this is all premeditated is all part of the globalist movement this is all part of the marxist movement you know soros and all kind of people that are throwing money into defunding the police or throwing money into these bad causes all these liberal causes so they just wait they're ready They wait for Michael Brown. They wait for George Floyd. Why is it within the next day, thousands of people are in the street in cities all across America, and it starts out, it always starts at about police brutality, but it always pivots because the Marxists get involved, take over the movement, and it always pivots to the founding father were racist, they had slaves, So the flag is bankrupt and so is the Constitution. And we have to start this country all over again with the Black Lives Matter or Antifa, whatever you want to say. And we're going to do it the socialist communist way. It always Colin Kaepernick. It starts with police, alleged police brutality. It gets to racist America. Michael Brown, same thing. It doesn't matter. It always gets there. Isn't this the proof that this is bigger than what we think. And this is about a globalist movement that Republicans and Democrats are involved in to bring this country down. Sure, without a doubt. Uh, And that's why I I brought up the phrase, you know, cultural rot and cultural dysfunction, because that's what this stuff is. Um, They take these, these common criminals. Mike Brown was a thug. Mike Brown strong armed the convenience store clerk on TV, we saw it. Right, before he ran into Officer Darren Wilson, and he tried to disarm a police officer, for heaven's sakes. And this nefarious movement, Black Lives Matter, they spun that into this, this hands-up-don't-shoot movement. Remember that? Yep. That later on was, was learned, it was learned that that was a lie, that he never had his hands up. He was never walking away from Darren Wilson. He was not shot in the back, but this thing took on a life of its own. And then you can go on. You can look at Eric Garner. You can look at, um, you know, other these, these other individuals who were involved in criminal activity when they came in contact with a police officer. Now, there are some uh, anomalies here. And there are anomalies like Walter. I think it was Walter Grady in, in South Carolina um, who was pulled over for a traffic stop. He took off running and the, the cop stood there and, and, you know, shot him in the back numerous yeah. times. Yeah. All right. Things those happen are anomalies. Those right. are anomalies. Those are there is no reason, by the way, um, you know, rioting is not an acceptable um, remedy for one's frustration. If they think there's something wrong with society and with the professional policing, 
There are institutions that we can go through to deal with that. It's not taking to the streets. It's not rioting. It's not looting. It's not shooting up the neighborhood. It's not uh, killing police officers. You have to, but see, that's what, what, what Black Lives Matter fuels. They fuel this rage that's out there. This, you know, and so it's, mis, it's misplaced rage anyway. A lot of it's frustration by people that their lives didn't turn out the way they wanted to. And usually it's through no fault. Uh, it's usually through the fault of their own. It's self-inflicted. They didn't finish school. They're not really willing to work hard and overcome some hardships. They're not willing to overcome, uh, you know, some injustices in society because those things do exist. But they existed for you and me, too. You have to learn how to overcome them. You know, overcoming obstacles is one of the greatest, I believe, character traits that a person can can possess because life's not perfect. The United States is not perfect. But you know what? When people want to go back and they want to look at the beginning of this country and they say, well, it was based on slavery and so on and so forth. Sure, but you know what? We got it right. We got it right with the 13th Amendment that, that, that freed the slaves and the 14th Amendment that uh, said that the rest of the Constitution applies to the newly freed slaves. We got it right, for heaven's sakes. And, and I never say forget about that stuff. But for heaven's sakes, Gary, when does the element of forgiveness come in? Because my recent ancestors, great-grandparents, they faced true discrimination. Amen. My great-grandparents, my father served in a segregated United States military. When he was mm -hmm. in the Army, the Army was segregated, for heaven's sake. These young fools walking around today talking about racism and discrimination, they've never experienced it, for heaven's sake. But nobody tells them that. When they come out talking stupid, someone needs to say, hey, look, shut up. What are you talking about? You live in the greatest country of the world. You have more opportunities than your ancestors had. They endured, and you're going to come complaining to me, but nobody has the courage, if you will, to tell these people to shut up and, and you know, get put your nose to the grindstone. If you want to work for the betterment of society, work within this damn institution of the United States and not out on the outside of it. Yeah, absolutely. And boy, you hit upon the mother load when you said the magic word forgiveness, because all this social justice crap that's out there that's being pushed by pastors, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, you know, regardless of nationality, social justice. Wait a minute. In a church. The church of Jesus Christ is about forgiveness. He went on a cross to die for the sins of mankind. You never hear these pastors, they're pushing the social justice. You never hear them say the magic word, we're supposed to forgive. We're right. supposed to forgive. And now, okay, we had slavery, we had this, we had that. Now, let's forgive and let's move on. Let's. What does it look like? What's the landscape look like now? Are people trying to get this right? And I, I see people, they say, I... I didn't have a slave. I wouldn't have a slave if it happened. Right. You know, a couple of that. That's not. That's that's. You can't put that on me. But they wanted with this critical race theory. Yeah. No. Not only am I going to put it on you, but you were born with it, and it, you can't. It can't be gotten rid of because because you're born white. You were born that way. Instead of that, we're all born in sin. And regardless of nationality, they have just flipped this thing, the Marxist way that it's just, it's, it's unbelievable they're, they're trying to get away with this. What do we have to do to stop this? Well, we got to look in the mirror, number one. Like I said, we have to self-correct. Um, and as a, as a community, as a black community, we have to get over this, this um, 
unbelievable, hard to believe thought that we can't self-criticize. What do I mean by that? Look, Barack Obama, Barack Obama was president of the United States. And if you were black, you could never say anything bad about him. Barack Obama did not do a lot to help the black community. But yet people walked around, you know, with their head in the sand. And if you said anything, and I was one of the ones that did. All right. Barack Obama, I talked about his policies and how they were bad for America and how they were bad for the black community. And then all of a sudden I'm the traitor to my race. No, no, no. You know what? We're, we're one of the few, one of the few. I didn't say the only as a community that won't allow us to to self-criticize. Mm-hmm. Whites do it all the time. Yep. You know, there are a lot of white people that don't like Joe Biden. They're not called traitors to their race. Why is it when I criticize some of the stuff that goes on in the black community? I'm a traitor to my race, but yet, you know, Hispanics, Asians, they do it and they're not considered a traitor to their race. They're not, everything's not viewed through the lens of race. I don't, I didn't like Barack Obama's policies, policies. For regardless of whether or not he was black, but that's one of the things that we need to do. We need to begin to self uh, criticize. And we also have to realize that there's a lot of things that go on today that are self-inflicted. All right. Things like single parent uh, households, things like school failure. You know, our kids in these black schools, they're reading math scores are among the worst in the nation. They're basically illiterate when they come out of these schools. The graduation rates are horrible. The truancy rates are high. That's a self-inflicted pathology, for heaven's sakes. That has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with discrimination. And so we need to stop fooling ourselves and have a come-to-Jesus moment and look inward. That's why I started my answer. I said, we got to start looking inward and say to them, say to each other, to your, and say to yourself, what could I be doing differently to affect a better outcome? What could I be doing? Not what the government could be doing better. Not what your neighbor could be doing better. You know, all this outward. No, no, no. What could you be doing different to affect a better outcome? Going back to, uh, you know, this this source of, of racism and discrimination. I made a pact with myself a long time ago. All right. And I, you know, like I said, with slavery, I'll never forget, oh my gosh, you know, the God who I pray to every day, who expects expects us to forgive. I forgave this country for slavery. I didn't mm-hmm. say I've forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. But at some point, like you said, look, you know, at, at some point, you got to move on. I didn't say get over it, but you got to move on. Now, that's just a decision I made. And I would not tell anybody that they need to do the same thing. But I don't want to be ridiculed by it, by my people. Because I have as if I'm, you know, I'm the bad guy. No, that was an individual decision that I made my peace with this country, gosh darn it. And this country has afforded me a lot of opportunities I would not have gotten anywhere else in the world. So, you know, what do I have to whine about? I hear you. Sheriff Clark, I have to ask you a question that I don't understand. Now, having been a sheriff for a long time and dealt with criminals, you'll have an answer, but this one is beyond me. If the left is pushing that the cops are all racist, if the left is pushing, and even LeBron James, I can't come out of my house, there's a war out there, they wanna kill us. If they're pushing that cops are racist and are looking for a reason to kill young black men, why, when a young black man gets stopped, as my father, Wally Benford, would always say, why are you giving him some lip? 
Yes, sir. No, sir. Take me down to jail or to the court where I can be safe, sir. I'm not opening my damn mouth and they give you a reason to try and do something, even though it's not true. I don't understand why these guys are pushing back and trying to jump bad with the very police that they're being told want to kill them. Can you explain that? Yeah, disrespect. We talked about it. The, the situation with Mike Brown. Uh, and the situation with most of these individuals who met their demise at the hands of a law enforcement officer. The, the, the bottom line, the common thread weaving through those is they resisted arrest. Look, you have an obligation. I don't care whether you like it or not, but in a free society, and this is a free society, you have an obligation to comply with a law enforcement officer who's, who's an authority figure and he also represents the state. You have an op- obligation to comply with a law enforcement officer's lawful commands. All right. In other words, when the the um, red and blue lights go on, and then law enforcement call them the takedown lights. When the takedown lights go on, you got to pull over. I don't. You you cannot hit the accelerator and take off. When the officer comes up and says, "Can I see your license?" Oftentimes in the hood, these guys don't have a license. Then they start with the lip, right? But why yeah. they if if they think you're going to shoot them? Why 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 would is this anger. total stupidity? Yeah, anger, rage. Um, and then oftentimes, and it isn't just because we're giving the officer lip, but they present some sort of threat. They attack the officer like Mike Brown. They resist arrest. They're told, hey, look, you're under arrest. You're going to jail. Turn around, put your hands behind your back, and they take off. Or they're going to fight you. And when you do that sort of thing, I'll tell you what, more times than not, things are not going to turn out real well for you. So, uh, again, where does that start? In the home. There's the an home. African proverb. There's an African proverb that says the ruin of a nation begins in the homes of its people. And that is very, very true. You you nailed that. And boy, you, it's been wonderful talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on. I've really enjoyed this. Before you tell people how they can reach you and the things you're involved in, my final question is, why is it so important to support our local police and how do we do that? Like, it's it's so important for everybody to get behind the, the police officers in your local community to let them know you care and you're behind them. How important is it to do that to help solve this problem? And how do people do that and get involved? Well, look, you know, the, the law enforcement officer is on the front lines of uh, civil society. All right. Without the police, society uh, dissolves into utter chaos. You see a uh, shredding of the social order when when the police aren't around and when you weaken that that instrument of of keeping civil life you know you can see like i said with the crime rates the numbers which are staggering to me anyway uh you see what can happen so you know most people know this already most people black people most black people know this that you got to help the police the police are not omnipresent they're not around all of the time but when they get called uh, a call for service and something happened, whether it be a crime or whatever, people who saw something, know something, have to step up, you know, because the cops cannot by themselves make this thing happen. Again, you have an obligation as a citizen of the United States to play a role in the safety and, and protection of your neighborhood, of your schools, inside your home, so on and so forth. And so if you're not going to assist the police, they're not going to be able to do much for you. And, and I think that that um, has always been a struggle in, in a black community, this thing called snitching. You know, don't don't talk to the police. 
but it comes with devastating consequences for heaven's sake. Why should good law-abiding black people, I don't care that they're poor, that they're uneducated, and some of these other uh, self-inflicted pathologies, they still deserve to live in peace and tranquility within that neighborhood, and they're not. And I think that is an injustice that I'm more irate about than these complaints about, you know, how the police are bad. I go, what about good law-abiding black people, the elderly black people, who have to hear gunshots every night, who have to put their kids in a bathtub at night to sleep in cases of drive-by shooting and, and errant bullets come into the house. And this has happened. And kids have been killed. In, in Milwaukee, about five years ago, there was a seven-year-old sitting at the table reading, doing her homework, a bullet ripped through the damn house, struck her in the head and killed her. And people are okay with this? Mm. Are you kidding me? Yeah. People, we have to wake up and wake up while we have time because the, they, they talk about police state. Well, a police state is when you have Mao, when you have Stalin, when you have Hugo Chavez, when you have the Castro brothers. Police state is, is actually the state taking over. And once the state takes over the government, then they control the national police. Notice how this Democratic Party now wants to take policing out of the state's and make it federal so they can control it. And man, you're not going to want a piece of it. Big mistake. Look, the difference between a police state and what we have here in the United States, it's called due process. Uh -huh. In a police state, the police can come, arrest you, search without a warrant, throw you in jail because they feel like it. And you have to sit there until they're, they're ready to let you go. In our country, there's due process and it starts right away. And there's certain things that the police have to do. They have to have probable cause. They have to have a search warrant and all of it has to be articulated and you get a defense. You can present a defense. You don't have that in a police state. You're right about that. Uh, Sheriff David A. Clark Jr., thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. You've dropped a lot of knowledge here and, and I, I hope people will just wake up and rise up while we still have time to do something about that. And speaking of that, your nonprofit grassroots organization, Rise Up Wisconsin Inc., please tell people about that and anything else you'd like to promote. Sure. They can go to riseupwisconsin.com. That's the website. It is a grassroots level uh, conservative organizing effort to influence state government to start doing the will of the people instead of will of special interests and lobbyists. You know, at the, end of, at the grassroots level, if you're not uh, a member in some sort of group, like, for instance, uh, a gun group, you know, they, they have lobbyists. All these groups have lobbyists, paid lobbyists. If you're the individual. You don't have a voice. So I'm trying to organize this effort at Rise of Wisconsin is that voice. We're putting together an agenda for Wisconsin that we're going to demand the legislature take up legislation on and, and move forward with it. And if not, well, then they're going to pay at, at, at election time. So this is government up formed by the people. It's gotten away from that. It's We have a ruling class instead of uh, public servants. They've forgotten their place. They've forgotten their role. But we're going to get their attention and we're going to do this at the state level because Washington is irreparably broken. It cannot be fixed. I think the way back to freedom and liberty in this country and self-rule, because that's what this is supposed to be, an experiment in self-rule, is through the 10th Amendment and states' rights. So I'm trying to impact in the state of Wisconsin. Again, riseupwisconsin.com. I need people's help. And yes, I need their money. This stuff is expensive, these movements. We have costs associated with this. It won't get off the ground. And it's only about six months old. But it is a 501c4, so it is organized. There are rules and there are um, uh, obligations 
So that should give people some comfort that, you know, if they make a donation, it isn't just going to be squandered. Yeah. And people that, you know, the left, like George Soros is dropping mega doses of money to defund the police. There's all kind of other things going on with all these liberal factions that want to get rid of the police. We need to keep police. God, God, almighty God, who created us and that the constitution of this country was written under the auspice of Judeo-Christian values, one of the things he did was he designed the government's role is actually not to raise people and it's not to be your daddy. It's governing and force. If you do good, you should be fine. If you do wrong, you're going to get punished. And we, we, we need somebody to be able to carry that out. So Romans police are very important. Yep. Romans chapter 13. You got it. And, and he said that the sword, they, it's got a sword for a reason. Now, a lot of times, don't forget, we live in a fallen world. Government can, you know, and the police are capable and people are capable of becoming tyrants. But it was set up for the right reason, set up for the right thing. And we need to hold our police accountable. But we also need to, as you just said, hold criminality and wrongdoing and people that want to take a free constitutional republic and turn it into a communist nation we, we need to hold them accountable, too, and stop this movement while we still have time. Sheriff Clark, you're very you're, you're, thank you for coming on. You're always welcome to be a guest on the show. It's been my pleasure. Be well. OK, you be well, too. There you have it. Former Sheriff David A. Clark Jr. And he pulled no punches. And people, you have to understand what is very important right here, this defund the police movement. In conjunction with taking away the guns from private citizens also, you should be able to see the rabbit hole they're trying to send us down, where they take away states' rights and where they run the government from the federal government, we're talking about the Marxist, communist, progressive, socialist, whatever you want to call them, as a federal government, and they become the state takes over what God has given to the family and the church, and without police and without guns, they could pull this thing off. So we've got to stop them right here, right now. Can't live without law and order. Can't live without a law and order, people. It's a must. We got to get this straight. And we have to have borders because a country without borders is not a country. Here to talk about this is Mr. Ron Vitello. His journey through government service initiated with the U.S. Border Patrol in Laredo, Texas, around 34 years ago as a field agent. He was elevated to leadership position, became the chief of the U.S. Border Patrol in 2017. I'll let him explain what that was about. In June of 2018, Ron became the acting director of the United States Immigration and Customs Enforcement affectionately known as ICE to those of us who understand what's going on. And he became the only person to lead both components of the Department of Homeland Security, the CBP and ICE. Retiring in 2019, Ron established a consulting firm that assists clients in border security, strategies, international trade, and organizational leadership. He's also a DHS strategist and planner at Axon Enterprises, which we'll let him explain about. But the main thing here is what the heck is going on at the border and what can we do to correct it? I'm happy to bring to the show Mr. Ron Vitello. 
Thanks for that, Gary. Appreciate that introduction. And it's good to be with you to share thoughts on, on what I believe is going on at the border and the unfortunate situation our agents and their families, frankly, the DHS family that, that are going through right now. Uh, you're very welcome, Ron. And I'm glad to have you and that there are people like you because, I, you know, I, I was raised that, you know, to respect authority and that there are bad people out there. And, you know, between keeping our nation safe at the borders and keeping our communities safe, whoever is ordained and trained to do that, they should be our friends. And it's amazing to me how many people are for open borders. And I don't understand why. You got to explain that to me. Yeah, I don't understand it either. I mean, we live in, we live in the, the most prosperous, uh, freest country on the planet. And um, part of the reason that we have that privilege is because we do uh, enforce the rule of law, that, that you know, private property, individual liberty uh, are something that we cherish in this country. And um, I, I often talk to people about, you know, I, I've got some expertise. I mean, I spent 34 years in the federal government focused on border issues. And when I talk to people, um, I, I implore them to understand that if we keep letting anybody that can make it to the border just walk into this country or, you know, walk in and, you know, have a brief stay with CVP and then released into the country, if we keep doing that, um, we're not going to be able to protect private property rights. We're not going to be able to to protect individual liberty uh, like we have during most of my lifetime. You know, we understand this. And I thought a lot of people that didn't understand this, what you just said, should understand what I'm about to say. If the Biden administration and Fauci, and I don't even want to call him a doctor, if they want to impose and take away our freedom and liberty and try and force people to take a shot that they know doesn't even work, and force you to take a shot and force the country to shut down and try and scare everybody about the virus, then why are they at the same time promoting open borders where anybody can come across and you don't, and why aren't they concerned about the virus at the border? It's very inconsistent. If you look at sort of the public policy and the, and the public discussion at this, the, the, the leadership is pushing. I mean, we, you know, we have uh, people coming, you know, like in the case of Del Rio, uh, that large Haitian influx, Less than 1% of that, up to 15, 18,000 people that came in uh, were vaccinated. Uh, and so we, we, we have, you know, we, we shut down for the last year and a half uh, in this country to protect people and to make sure that our hospitals didn't get overwhelmed. And, and we did other things as it related to public health and jurisdictions all over the country. Uh, yet we saw that that influx at that one location for a couple of weeks um, and then we later learned uh, last weekend, as a matter of fact, uh, that that most of those people were released into the country uh, on an order of recognizance or a notice to appear. Uh, and it's just uh, it's unfortunate that that we are we, we've suffered from trying to to uh, contain uh, the pandemic. But then we have this glaring example of which, you know, that no standard, no medical health standard 
uh, was observed during the time that that influx was going on and continues to go on, right? Uh, Del Rio got highlighted across the globe um, after what happened with the with the horse patrol. Uh, but this this has been happening since since you know mid January January twentieth as a matter of fact uh, we've had an influx on the border the likes of which we never have seen uh, you know the, I, the department's only been around since two thousand and three they've never seen anything like this I was in the border patrol for thirty three years I've never seen anything like what we saw uh, in Del Rio but that has been happening uh, all over our border uh, our southwest border uh, since January twentieth this year. Uh- Scary stuff that we're seeing on TV and 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 the genesis of this, please take us back, because I remember when people like Chuck Schumer and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and all kind of Democrats were talking about you have to secure the border and, you know, you can't have a be a country run by illegal aliens. You know, there was a time in which people on the left actually were talking about legal immigration. Where did this go off the rails? I'm not sure. Uh, I, I do remember the time that, I, you know, I was at ICE uh, started in June of 2018. A lot of the candidates uh, that were running for office at the time, uh, and, and some of them actually got elected that following November, uh, but, but many of them were running on the, on the policy of abolishing ICE. I mean, that was, that was, a, that was a campaign slogan for, for many of these candidates. Uh, and now some of them are in the legislature. They're, they're, they're in Congress. And so you can see how the House has funded or, or is attempting to fund uh, DHS for next year. And you can see where their priorities lie. And, and I'll give you an example. I don't have this stuff in front of me right this second, but the House marked up a bill for DHS funding for 22, uh, which will actually spend more on mitigation, environmental mitigation for the wall that was installed in the previous administration, they're going to spend more on environmental mitigation for the wall than they will on technology for between the ports uh, that border patrol agents use each and every day to protect us. And so think about that. You know, that, that is a real example of where uh, the legislature is at, where our political leadership is, at least at that level, uh, and what their, you know, what they, what their priorities are. You fund what your priority is. And if you don't fund border security, you you send a message, you send a message to the workforce, you send a message to the border communities and you send a message around the globe. And that's what we've seen, um, that, that this, this crew, the current crew, uh, is just not interested in, in robust border security and controlling the border. And, and like you said, it wasn't that long ago, 2006, the secure fence act, uh, where there was a bipartisan agreement on making sure that we gave the tools the tactics, the techniques, the equipment, uh, the knowledge to the border patrol, to DHS, uh, to protect our border, to control it in ways, you know, that, that, that frankly, the American people have demanded for quite some time. Yeah. And that's gone by the way of, and it's, it's amazing how like a guy like Chuck Schumer, who's in my state, how in New York, how, He's on one side then, and and then now he's on a complete opposite side. He's gone and completely done a, a 180. But then you put the quotes up, or you pull the quotes what Obama said, or what any of them say, and don't care. And the media doesn't care, and the left doesn't care, and they just go on as if they never said these things. You know, that, that's absolutely amazing to me that we let them get away with this. But here's another thing that we've let them get away with. Do you think when they went after ICE 
And when there was that big movement to try and defund ICE, that that was the forerunner to allow them now to think about actually defunding the police. I, I think that's, that's an accurate description. I mean, these people ran for office saying that, that, that they wanted to do, with, uh, do away with ICE. That sentiment hasn't left. Um, but now, unfortunately, it's also affecting the, the, the border itself and Border Patrol and CDP, which, you know, previously they weren't part of this discussion, at least not, uh, at least not out loud. Uh, not not in not in the campaign uh, rhetoric where people were saying, "Hey, let's abolish this agency. Let's reimagine or this goofy, you know, concept of like let's let's do less enforcement and and say we're protecting people better." It's just a it's always been a fantasy, uh, but now it, it seems more, you know, the, the people who who you know said that out loud as they were running for office, uh, some of them are now office holders. They're, they're like I said, they're in the Congress. This is scary. You know, we talk about things like we talk about the CBP and we talk about ICE, uh, which are parts of the Homeland Security. But a lot of people probably don't really know what Homeland Security is and what ICE actually does. So can you fill the listening audience in on really what Homeland Security is about and why it is so important, not only protecting us from within, but also protecting us without? From within, from from inside the country, but also from outside the country, making sure people don't come into the country. Yeah, yeah. So if, for those that don't realize, the, the, the department was created in 2003 uh, as a response to the 9-11 attacks uh, in, in 2001. And so the, the, the solution uh, that the government came up with was let, let's establish a department that is focused on, you know, preventing threats to the homeland, preventing the you know 9/11 style attacks to the homeland, and so they took some departments from all over the government, namely the you know the big ones, uh, all of the customs and all of the immigration resources that some were in the Treasury Department, some were in the Department of Justice, and then there was a big part in the Federal Aviation Administration, the TSA, what what we know now as TSA, um, and so they consolidated those. Uh, agencies into the Department of Homeland Security, which is, I think it's a total of 22 uh, that, that weren't necessarily together before are now. And so as it relates to CBP, they unified all the border and immigration related trade, et cetera, trade travel and border in between the ports and at the ports. They consolidated all that into customs and border protection. So the border patrol and what was previously the U.S. Customs Service merged and on the other side of the of the Beltway, if you will, or on 12th Street, you know, uh, CBP's on 14th, and, and ICE headquarters is on 12th Street. And that is the unification of all uh, immigration investigations and the detention and removal operations, as well as, you know, they have a big medical team, they have a big transportation team, and both of them have general counsels. Uh, in, uh, in ICE, it's called Office of Principal Legal Advisor. But those agencies were designed, CBP, to protect us at the borders, uh, land, sea, and air, and in between. Uh, and then ICE was supposed to be focused on investigating and prosecuting, uh, you know, making cases for immigration fraud, uh, for protecting, uh, you know, threats from terrorism to help screen visas overseas. Um, and then they have the enforcement removal operations. So when CBP catches someone, 
who is in the country illegally. When they make that encounter, they set them up for a deportation hearing. And ICE is responsible for the detention and then ultimate removal after order of a judge of individuals who are in custody uh, for violating immigration law. So both entities were designed to economize the government resources and, and put those skills and techniques uh, and those agencies' capabilities in one Department of Homeland Security. And again, that, that department was created focused on what happened on 9-11 to prevent things like that from happening and happening again. And one of the one of the flaws pre-9-11, pre-stand-up of DHS, was our immigration system. There were many people, as there are now, there were many people who came to the United States potentially under legal circumstances, like the, like the terrorist hijackers. Uh, and they came and under you know, immigration rules, and, and they were let into the country legally, uh, but then used that, their time on this economy uh, to learn how to harm us, and, and did so in a grievous way on 9-11. And CDP and ICE were born of that necessity to keep that from happening again. And, and so ICE is focused, you know, the, the Homeland Security Investigations Group is one of the most capable agencies in government. They do a lot of things uh, as it relates to protecting the homeland, uh, things that people don't necessarily uh, know about. They do a lot of anti-proliferation work. They do a lot of uh, protection of intellectual property rights. But then they're also focused on terrorist threats, and they're, they're the largest contributor to the Joint Terrorism Task Force that is headed by the FBI but uses resources across government, and ICE is one of the biggest contributors to that process. This that, the Joint Terrorism Task Force is the group that's out there making sure that they understand threats as they exist in, in our communities, and they're, they're actively seeking to deter people from you know, that, that become radicalized, that, that, that adopt, the, you know, the mindset of the ideology of the 9-11 attackers. And, and they're focused on doing that. And ICE is their biggest contributor. HSI uh, is the biggest contributor to that task force. Uh, and a lot of the times trying to find a terrorist or trying to charge somebody and prosecute them for material support of terrorism is a very difficult and complex case to work. But with ICE's assistance, some of those targets that law enforcement fully well knows that are threats to our society or threats to the homeland, uh, ICE can get them removed based on their immigration authorities in Title VIII. Uh, that's the, that is why ICE is in the Department of Homeland Security, to use those authorities uh, to find those discrete threats and then take action where appropriate. Prosecution, if, that, if they're amenable to it, uh, but in the cases where it's not, then remove those threats uh, and send them from where they came. I hear you. Uh, Ron, my, my show used to be live. It just became a podcast in September. Uh, when it was live, I had on angel moms like Agnes Gibney out in California, Sabine Durden Coulter, whose, whose sons were killed by illegal aliens and people that shouldn't have been in the country that had been thrown out and back in and thrown out and back in. And we know so many stories. Every time you see an illegal alien killing somebody senselessly, this person that shouldn't have been in the country should have been deported. So many things happen. We see the border is open. They want they're they're letting people come in. Nobody knows who's coming in, who they are, where they're going. Then you see ICE and Homeland Security seemingly being handcuffed and under attack by the administration and by the radical left. Do we have a right to feel safe in this country right now? Like is Homeland Security able to really protect us? I guess I'm asking how much jeopardy are we in, in your opinion, at this point in time? 
Well, I mean, this, let me say that, that the angel moms, you know, I, I got to meet many of them when I was, you know, seeking the nomination. There was a, there was a, a, events at the white house that, that, uh, the, that the president invited them to. And, and, you know, they have tragic stories of what are essentially preventable crimes. You know, their, their, their children and their, and, and their loved ones were victims of people who were in the country illegally and then went on to commit this heinous crimes where they lost family members over. So your heart goes out to them and um, they're real advocates. These are people who know personally the effects of an uncontrolled border. Uh, and so, so you, you, know, you really have to appreciate their activism and, and their ability to articulate what is very painful circumstances that they're in. As far as, you know, how, how we should feel about um, ISIS work and, and, and the threats and dangers that, that we face because of, a, of an uncontrolled border and a, a, a real rollback of policies um, that, that, in my opinion, are, are not consistent with immigration law. And so, yeah, we all know of the scourge of MS-13, one of the most radical, violent gangs, uh, organized crime that's existed on the planet. Um, they're a a threat to the nation states where they come from, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, for sure. Um, But many of them are here in this country, and and the the border and the state that it's in now actually gives them sort of fertile recruiting grounds for all these people who are coming in, uh, unaccompanied children that come from from that region of the world uh, who then fall prey to these gangs. And so, yeah, and, and there are, you know, you add to you know, the rollback and, the, and sort of this misguided priorities that the ICE is, uh, is forced to deal with now under this administration. You also have jurisdictions like the entire state of California and then many towns and cities, almost every big city in the United States, uh, provide sanctuary. Sanctuary to who? People who are, who are immigrating into the United States and, and need to be protected as refugees and asylees? No, no, no. These are people who come into the country illegally go on to commit other crimes inside of those jurisdictions. Think about a place like Chicago, Illinois. Uh, They go on to commit another crime in Chicago. The police then decide to take their liberty away because of their threat to public safety. They put them in jail. They they attempt to prosecute them for the crimes that they committed on the streets of Chicago. And that jurisdiction refuses to call ICE when they know those people are in the country illegally. And then again, are criminals, not just you know, they didn't get picked up for just walking around or jaywalking. They got picked up for serious crimes, uh, but they refused to cooperate with ICE because of some hard to understand notion um, that, that that somehow is supposed to make us safer when they actually are, they're giving sanctuary to people who are criminals, not, not just because they're here illegally, but they've also committed crimes. And so I don't understand it, but that is a threat to those jurisdictions. It's a threat to the, the law abiding uh, peaceable people who live in, communities like that yeah well since we're talking about the border let let's hunker down and get down to the nitty-gritty here exactly what and who are coming across i i met a young woman at the rock the red convention in january down in uh, south carolina in greenville by the name of eliana brooks who wasn't even sure what country she was born in. She was sold into slavery, sex trafficking at the age of five and brought to the United States. And until she escaped at around the age of 17 was a sex slave. And she spoke a lot about 
the sex trafficking that is a major, major business in this country of bringing uh, young women and, and guys because her, her, her brother was also he died, but he was brought over for the same thing. So you hear about the sex trafficking, which I didn't really know about if it was that large. And you can tell tell us how large you think it is. You hear about the drugs. You hear about the, the people coming to get into the country illegally, illegal aliens. You hear you know about terrorists. Have we left anybody out? Well, you, you haven't left them out, but, you know, I kind of want to emphasize the, the, this, these drug cartels, this organized crime. You know, they are definitely in the business of drug smuggling. And that, that's how we all come to know, you know, things like the Sinaloa cartel. That's how they, you know, became infamous, if you will. But they are all now participating in this human trafficking and the flow of alien smuggling that, that traverses Mexico from all over the world, not just not just Central and South America. But um, there was a report yesterday uh, that the, the chief, the former chief of the Border Patrol, Ronnie Scott, said that uh, last, last he counted, he, he left government in, I think, in June, uh, 150 different countries uh, up, up till then, up till then in this fiscal year. So from, from October of last year uh, till June this year, the Border Patrol CBP has been responsible for apprehending people from 150 different countries. Uh, and so th- those threats are real. Uh, when you have an uncontrolled border, when you have, you know, this uncontrolled smuggling across the southwest border, it encourages these cartels to participate in it. It is a source of income for them. It's a source of of unlimited funding, which allows them to corrupt their local governments uh, and, 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 and hire corrupt officials to help ply their trade. Uh, and in the meantime, people are picked off in that pipeline, you know, young, innocent women and, and, and men who would otherwise come to the United States, perhaps to find a better life, perhaps to, you know, to try to uh, eke out a living in this economy. But they're scraped off by these cartels and they're, they're put in, in, in sex slavery operations. Uh, they're trafficked to employers, uh, some in the United States, some worldwide. And, and they're, they're used just for the fact that, that they're super vulnerable as they're coming through this pipeline. And so uh, the cartels recognize this. It's a source of income from them for them. Because uh, nothing, you know, when, when I was a young agent in 1985 in Laredo, a lot of the traffic, probably 99% of it in that time frame, were people who were coming from Mexico, mostly for economic reasons, almost 100% for economic reasons, because of the imbalance between us and Mexico during that time in our collective history. Uh, but now that's not the case. Now the overwhelming majority of people who come to the border are not from Mexico, uh, upwards of 70% in, in a place like the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, are, are not from Mexico, they're from some other place. Uh, and so the logistics and the, the whole continuum of enforcement is, is more challenging because people are so far away from home. When they're from Mexico, you know, there, there's an ability to, to return send them, them. Send them back, right. Yeah, fairly rapid fashion. But when, when people are from different regions in the world and uh, the coordination and the detention that's required, it, it's much bigger challenge uh, for the department. You brought up an interesting point that in Laredo, in that area, when back in the day, that a lot of the people coming over from Mexico were coming for a better life. To to they they see America as a land of opportunity, which is kind of funny when you got people the the left are trying to tell us this is a racist, bigoted, hateful country, 
And so why would people want to come here if it's that wink, wink? But the point I was going to ask you, there was a time when the illegal aliens were coming for better life. Is that the same thing now? Like it has the percentages change of the people coming across the border? Are they coming because they want to come to America for a better life? Or has the balance of that changed dramatically for for other deleterious reasons? I think we're much more aware of the threat uh, now. Is certainly since uh, 9-11. We recognize that's why the department was created, as we spoke about earlier. You know, that, that's why the department was created, to, to prevent those threats from entering the country. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of this is economics, but you, you could see um, that it's not all of that. You, you, when, you, when you recognize uh, the impact, uh, MS-13, I'll give you an example. You know, there are certain neighborhoods in, the, uh, in, uh, in New York where they're, they're prevalent. They are, they are the, the large gang influence in, in particular communities. And ICE does a great job in tracking them down and, and tracking that threat and apprehending you know, those that are in the country illegally, uh, many of them who have committed serious felonies. And we did, a, we did a look back for one of the years that I was there in 2018, I believe it was, 3,500 MS-13 gang members were taken off the street in that time frame by ICE. Uh, they were convicted of felonies. They, they, they weren't just in the country illegally, and they weren't convicted just for immigration crimes, but they were convicted for all sorts of things, you know, murder, mayhem, et cetera. Uh, 3,500 of them, fully one third of that 3,500. So a little over a thousand of those MS 13 gang members came to the United States as children. So if they were coming with their parents for economic reasons, um, that's not how their life turned out. You know, they ended up in some of the worst neighborhoods uh, in our country and they were preyed upon by the very gangs that their parents told immigration officials at the border, they were trying to escape from home. And so, you know, people think that like, oh, you know, we should just let everybody in and, 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 you know, we're a free country and we're a nation of immigrants and those kinds of, you know, platitudes that people spout about. But, but the, those kids that get forced into the MS-13 gang and then their lives turn into, you know, they become felons, that, that's not what their parents had in mind for them uh, when they left home to come to the United States. And so those threats are real. And, you know, people want to talk about what happens to folks that are coming and why they come. There's all sorts of reasons, push and pull factors that, that I think what, what people need, need to realize, it, it's not always an upside for even for the people that are involved in the case uh, of, of these kids. Yeah, I, I, I do. I do hear you. You know, I have a two part question as it applies to America's way of looking at this issue. On one hand, since we're all immigrants, we're all from somewhere that are here legally. We understand that for some people, it could have been years of waiting in line to get to the United States the right way, the proper way. So is there still uh, you know, a prevalent thought among the majority of Americans that people, A, should do this the right way? Because when they're coming across as illegal aliens, they're cutting the line, there are people who have been waiting years to get into this country and they're just bypassing them, the people that are trying to do it the right way. That's one part. And then the second part is, are we starting to catch on that this isn't working, that this is becoming a major, major problem, which could lead to not only the breakdown of cities, the breakdown of the workplace, but also 
a part political party looking to use this as a, to to get voters eventually trying a path to citizenship and try and just change the country in a way that we really wouldn't want it changed. Well, let me just say on the, on the immigration side, the immigrant side that, you know, there is a rich history in the United States of immigration. My own experience, I mean, I'm second generation uh, on my father's side. His, his parents came here from Italy in the early teens. Uh, my mom was uh, what they called a displaced person at the time. She was fleeing the, the, fall of the Iron Curtain after World War II. And so my own story, my own backstory is one of immigration. And yes, I think it's completely unfair and inconsistent that we let people come across the border illegally. They're released into the United States, sent wherever they choose to go uh, with a notice to appear. And and my experience and, and, and history shows us that many of them will not pursue their claims in immigration court, even if they tell people at the border that they want asylum in the United States. Many of them don't follow up on those claims. And so I think it's inconsistent uh, that we restrict immigration, purposely so, and that's not a bad thing. We restrict it so, so we want to know when and where people are coming. We want to know what their backgrounds are. We want to make sure they're not a threat to this country and that they actually contribute uh, to this nation. Um, and so letting people in and doing this catch and release at the, at the border is inconsistent with our other rules uh, for people who do follow the rules. And, 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 it's, and it's not fair to them um, that they're waiting in line and they're, they're complying with all the requirements. Um, but if you, you know, if you go across the border in Del Rio, during the, you saw that during the Haitian influx that was happening there a couple of weeks ago that many of them got released in the United States. And as far as it's wor- it working or not working, it's, it's obviously, it's obvious that we've needed for quite some time uh, a reform of the immigration law. Now it depends on who you talk to, what that reform means. Um, as a former agent, I can tell you what I asked Congress for, uh, fix the, what we called the Flores loophole, give ICE and CBP the resources that they need to control the border, right? That's personnel, technology, and infrastructure as it relates to, to CBP, and that's walls, that's roads, that's sensors, that's cameras, that's an ability to respond, that's more agents, uh, and, then, and then give ICE adequate space for detention so that when CBP turns these people over, there's plenty of room for them to get their due process but held in custody until they see the judge. When that judge decides whether they get relief, or whether they're removable or need to be removed, then they're in custody and, it, and, they, and they go through the removal process. Those are the tools that DHS needs to help control our border. And, and, and as it relates to the first part of your question on the immigration side, it's my opinion that if we could credibly secure our border and convince the American public that that border was secure, that people couldn't just walk across and be released into the country, if we secured that border, um, people would be much more generous uh, on, on the legal immigration side. We, we take in about a million uh, immigrants every year in this country. That's more than the rest of the world combined. So we're very generous as it is. I think we could afford to be much more generous if we could convince the American people uh, that we can control the border and we're committed to do it. Um, I think we would be much more uh, able to perhaps uh, – make the number of a million bigger that, that again, that would require legislation 
that would require the will of the of the people to be enacted. And I, I think their first will is to control the border. Uh, and, and I think they're likely to be a lot more generous um, if that condition existed. I hear you, Ron. Ron, people, this is my final question. People have uh, are seeing what's going on. The Biden administration is just showing they really care more about bringing people into this country than the rights and the freedom constitutionally of the American people. Do you think the American people are starting to catch on? Because some of what we're seeing should be horrifying. I believe people are getting to understand it more. I, I think we saw some uh, changes, if you will, in the demographics and the voting during this last election. Um, there, there's a lot of reporting about, you know, uh, Republicans taking seats on the border that had been in Democrat hands for over 50 years. There's a couple of districts uh, near the in the Rio Grande Valley, a place called Star County, uh, which is very deep blue for most of its history. Uh, you, you saw that that constituency go in big numbers, big percentages uh, for President Trump because they knew he was committed to fixing the border. And, and it's often immigrant communities, it's often border communities that know full well when the federal government is not meeting its commitment uh, to securing the border. And, and, and that constituency you know, voted for the, you know, the, the Trump plan, if you will, which was to secure the border uh, and catch and release. That's how we stopped the last surge. Uh, and, and, and like I said, those people see it firsthand. Well, boy, I, I hope we get this under control because, as you know, most nations get with destroyed from within. And we, we can get destroyed from this end by letting the wrong people come in here, mainly not because they were bad people that we could have stopped, but because they're illegal aliens and bad people with bad intentions that we let in on our own. Ron, thanks for coming on the show. Please tell people how they can reach you and what you're involved with now. Anything that you're involved with that you'd like to promote and how people are able to reach you if you are reachable. Yeah. So I, I'm on, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So people can look for Ronald Vitello on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. You can search me there. Um, I don't spend a lot of time responding to Twitter. I mostly get my news from that, but uh, it's, since October of last year, I've taken a job with Axon Enterprises, LLC. You'll know them for the famous product. It's called the taser. Uh, it, it, and they have since uh, perfected, uh, body-worn cameras, and so they're a company that believes in the rule of law. They believe in protecting life uh, and supporting law enforcement, so they give de-escalation tools like the Taser uh, to law enforcement agencies across the globe, and I'm proud to be associated with them because they do support uh, our, the men and women that wear the uniform uh, like I did in my career, and so I'm helping them understand the complexities of DHS as it relates to strategy and how the department thinks, how it plans, how it sets requirements. Uh, it's been a great uh, run with the company. I mean, I, I was on an awesome team uh, in the Border Patrol for many, many years, and the Axon team uh, is, is also a great place uh, to continue to help uh, promote the, the rule of law, protect life, uh, and give our men and women in uniform uh, the best capabilities that technology can bring them. Yeah, I, I hear you. And and for those that don't know, uh, Ron followed Thomas Holman 
uh, as the head of ICE, and Thomas had been on my show, and he spoke very highly of you. Uh, so, you know, thank you very much for your service. I know it's a very dangerous job that you guys do, and we we need this because the country must be secure. If you can't secure your borders, you don't have a nation. So, I thank you very much. Anytime you want to come on and you have anything you need to say or you need to get to anything off your chest, you're very welcome to come back. I thank you, Mr. Ron Vitello. Well, thank you, Gary. Really appreciate it. Same here. Stay safe. Stay well. And I say that because I know you're still you're still at it in some way, shape or form. Great. Thanks. Thank you. Ron Vitello. Letting us know what is going on and not going on at the border. And as most of you know, that are paying attention, it's not good at all under the Biden administration. We got to do something about this, people. And part of it is understanding the threat so we can help change the equation as Americans. And we can do that with our vote. We've got elections coming up. These people that want open borders, open borders, they must be voted out. Well, we've talked about law and order, and we've talked about what is going on at the border. My next guest will be able to merge the two together, explain to you why they go hand in hand, and then give us an overview of what really is going on in this country as it applies to law and order in the border, and why we've got to do something right here, right now, to stem the tide while we still have time to do so. Mike Cutler began a 30-year career as an immigration inspector in 1971, and boy, has he seen it all, and he's been it all. He became a special agent in 1975, assigned to the Unified Intelligence Division of the DEA. Then he became a senior special agent assigned to Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. He provided testimony to the 9-11 Commission. He's testified before more than a dozen hearings in both the United States Senate and the House. He provides expert witness testimony at trials where immigration is the issue. You've seen him all over Fox News, all over OAN, all over Newsmax, even on CNN and MSNBC of all places. He's appeared in documentaries, a much sought after public speaker, and he's a writer. He hosts his own radio program, which you'll tell us about, the Michael Cutler Hour. He is now a retired senior special agent of the former Immigration and Naturalization Service. Glad to bring to the show Mike Cutler, and boy, does he have a lot to say. Mike, how are you? I'm terrific, Gary. Thank you for that great introduction, and, and thank you for having me, and thank you for getting the information out there. You know, back at Brooklyn College, I'm a Brooklyn boy on 9-11. It wasn't only my country that was attacked. It was my hometown that was attacked. My neighbors died, uh, and the ashes from 9-11 landed on my home and landed on me and my family. So this is a very personal, up-close issue for me, as it should be for all Americans. But I started out as an engineering student, wound up with a degree in communications, arts, and science, as I call it, my BA in BS. Um... But I was going to teach debate on the college level. And what I find so disturbing, and all of my friends have said to me, boy, they're after the Second Amendment. I said, wait, they're going to come for the First Amendment. Are we there yet? 
Yeah. Now it turns out that the FBI is going to investigate anybody who dares stands up at a meeting, apparently, and speaks out against critical race theory being taught to our kids. I mean, in, in what universe are parents supposed to acquiesce and not have a role or a voice in what happens to their children in school? And before we get into immigration, I just want to make one observation. Please do. I remember as an immigration agent. And by the way, I rotated through all the squads within the investigations branch. I also worked with Senator Al D'Amato back in the 80s to create the aggravated felon reentry law. Um, you know, I was going to be an engineer, too. My kids are engineers. And the engineer mentality is how do you fix things? So it used to be that reentry, always a felony, but it used to only carry a two-year maximum jail sentence. They never wanted to pursue it at the U.S. Attorney's Office. It was a minor crime. Who wants to be bothered? And I said, you know what? Two years in jail is wonderful if you're a dishwasher or a farm worker. You have no criminal history. Um, you get deported. You come back. Fine. Two years in jail. That's appropriate. But if you're a dirtbag, if you're a murderer, a child molested, drug dealer, gun runner, rapist, you come back. We ought to drop a safe on your head to make the point that once we've gotten rid of you, don't come back. And so I suggested to D'Amato a couple of things. Number one, I said this should be a 20-year maximum felony for bad guys. We ought to be holding deportation hearings in jail so that when these people are released from prison, you can put their rear ends on airplanes, not first try to figure out what to do with them. And we ought to be prioritizing criminal aliens over non-criminal in terms of deportation, but not exclusively because you want to back up the Border Patrol and the inspectors at ports of entry so that when people do violate the immigration laws, they face deportation and consequences. But, you know, I started out talking about my degree in communications and where we are being an engineer. Um, right now, the threat that we face is shutting Americans down. And when I was an immigration agent, they said, you know, obviously illegal aliens can't hold office, although there's a lot of crazy politicians trying to change that. They're not supposed to vote. That's a felony. But they can vote in school board elections. And I said, why? And they said, well, even if you're an illegal alien and you have a child, whether your child is a citizen or not, um, as a parent, you should have control over what happens to your child. It's only rational and reasonable that even if you're illegal, you can participate in a school board election. Now, I don't care what anyone else thinks about it. I think that's reasonable. OK, I, I don't want anyone to come here and be encouraged. And Harry Reid and all the other Democrats used to rail and scream. They shouldn't have birthright citizenship. You don't belong here. And I agree with Harry Reid. But of course, the Democrats have become the ultimate turncoats. But everyone acknowledged that the relationship between parents and their children. Parents should have an absolute right to determine the future of their children, unless we take the kids from the parents because the parents are abusive or whatever. But under normal circumstances, that bond between mother and father uh, and, and child, uh, my God, it should be inviolate. And I was a single parent. My first wife died when my, my oldest son was 22 months old for six, month, for six years or five years. It was just the two of us before I got remarried and I have more children now. And so here we are being told that if you stand up at a school board meeting, you're liable to be interviewed by the FBI. How is that for an interesting juxtapositioning of concepts? On the one hand, We've always acknowledged that illegal aliens should be able to determine who is on the school board if their kids are going to school because of that important relationship between parent and child. And now parents are being beaten over the head 
to tell them, sit down, shut up. We know what's best for your children. Have I lost something along the way here, Gary? Yeah, you have, Mike. And what you lost is that you know the plan, you know what they're trying to accomplish. So on one hand, yeah, this will this will work for the illegal alien. Well, well yeah, you oh the bond, you got to do that. Oh, but if you're an American citizen parent that wants to stand up for your rights and your freedom, we're going to bop you over the head. And before we go any further, I have to make one thing perfectly clear here because. I know what a lot of people are thinking. A lot of people are thinking, I don't know who this Mike Cutler guy is, but he, this guy sounds like a far right wing conservative. Uh-huh. Tell him who you are, Michael. Let's set the record straight. And then I'm a, Jew- I'm a Jewish kid from Brooklyn. I'm a lifelong registered Democrat. Just a, a, a quick on my own family, how I came to be a Democrat. My parents were Democrats. My mom came here at the tender age of 13 by herself legally lived by herself in a rooming house, supported herself at 13 in a strange country with no ability to speak the language. She was able to get out of Poland. My grandmother, for whom I was named, was trapped in Poland and died during the Holocaust. So my mother supported herself by working in a sweatshop, making umbrellas for $3 a week. And during the Depression, with a fourth grade education, became the chief buyer of a dress company uh, that was so successful during the Depression. Her boss became one of Roosevelt's dollar a year men who advised Roosevelt on how to get the economy going and frequently pointed at my mother as the reason he was so successful. She was only in her 20s. And my dad was a construction worker, born in America. His His family came from Russia at the turn of the last century. He was a tradesman. And to me, tradesmen are golden. This big deal about college education. My parents made sure I went to college. Sadly, they died before I graduated. It was a tough day when I got my degree because they weren't there. But my gosh, we beat up on tradesmen. We hear all this crap about the work Americans won't do. But back then, the Democrat Party looked out for blue-collar workers, for union people, for postal people, for hardworking Americans. And the Republicans supported the goals of business owners. And, and that's fine. You know, labor management has always been a dividing line. And both sides have reasonable and unreasonable demands. I think we can agree on that. So it made sense when you had the Democrats saying, we're going to look out to the rights and the concerns of the working folks. And the Republicans said, and we're going to look out for the concerns of business owners. It made sense. America made sense. And America made tremendous progress. And we built the greatest country in the history of the world. And I landed on the side of labor. My dad being a construction worker, I literally carried him off his job his last day at work. He was dying of lung cancer in part because he smoked what I call Chesterfield blowtorches. I hated those damn things. But he also worked in the Navy shipyards during the Second World War because they wouldn't allow him into the military because of the Sullivan brothers, the five brothers who were killed on a ship during the war. They said, if you're the sole surviving male member of your family, can't go in the military. My dad tried three separate times to get them to let him get into the military. He wanted to kill Nazis. They wouldn't do it. He said, you know what? I'm a plumber. I'm going to work on the warships. If I can't kill the bums, let me at least help the guys who are out there doing the shooting. 
Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's stop right there. So how do you feel now? And we'll get into the immigration thing, but you just segue. Your father warned to kill Nazis. How do you feel about what you're seeing in this country right now? Because that party that you used to love and see, and one of the reasons I was a Democrat until I became a Christian and then morality and 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 same sex marriage and abortion and those things became my issues. But as it applies to what we're dealing with now, your father wanted to kill Nazis, and now you're watching this party actually looking to embrace that 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 whole Stalinist, Maoist, yep. uh, uh, Gramsci thing. Yep. How does that apply to the topic today, law and order and the border, as it applies to why we're in this mess? Well, it, it infuriates me on a scale you can't begin to imagine. And when I hear this garbage about Antifa, the anti-fascists, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you know who the anti-fascists are? It was the men and women of the armed forces who went after Hitler and Mussolini and, and, and uh, you know, dictatorial Japan. I mean, goodness gracious. Uh, the problem that we have in America today is ignorance and stupidity. And I think it's, it's not only the mainstream media, it's social media. It's about controlling language through the control of language. You control thought. Again, my degree was in communications. I was That's going cultural to- Marxism, right? Cultural Marxism. Absol- Anto- absolutely. Antonio Gramsci's grandchild. A- absolutely. And, you know, it's not only Orwell. I, well, I've, I've been on a one man campaign to stop people from saying political correctness. I very rarely hear it. I'd like to believe that maybe I've had some influence. Uh, this is Orwellian newspeak. But I love a quote by a gentleman by the name of Voltaire who said that those who make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. He also said you judge a person's intelligence by the questions they ask. And we've become a country of people that are reluctant to voice an opinion for fear that someone's going to you know, get upset. I came from Brooklyn. I come from Brooklyn. I'm still in Brooklyn. And I had enough schoolyard fistfights. I was a scrawny kid. And my heroes growing up we're not ball players, You know, my favorite oxymoron is heroic play. I'm still trying to figure out how you can be a hero when you're playing. My heroes were people like Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom. I got letters from those astronauts as a kid. I wouldn't trade them for all the sports memorabilia in the world. I've met some of the astronauts. I met Jim Lovell, Dave Scott. I have a photo with Gene Kranz. These are my heroes. And growing up in Brooklyn, if you didn't think sports was the be-all and end-all, you were accused of being quote-unquote a fag, and there would be a fist fight. And I used to come home with black eyes and a bloody nose, and my dad said, you're going to go to a gym, you're going to work out, you're going to put on some weight, and you're going to learn how to defend yourself. And now if you dare defend yourself, you're the guy that's probably going to wind up in handcuffs. And how we've allowed this to happen, it's, it's the boiling frog principle. It didn't happen quickly, it happened gradually. We're going to help you defend yourself against the bullies. Well, my parents told me that if you want to do something right, do it yourself. I don't need someone defending me against the bullies. Now, I hate bullies. I can't tell you how many times I got my clock cleaned until I went to that gym, and then I returned the favor, and then the music stopped, and that was a life lesson. If you can't deal with schoolyard bullies, folks, those nitwits are your sparring partners for life. We've got to learn how to stand on our own two feet. We've got to learn how to stand up for ourselves, and we have to look to find common ground with our neighbors. We don't have to agree on every issue. I might disagree with you on a couple of issues, Gary, and that's fine. As Americans, that's our birthright. It's called the First Amendment. But my goodness, 
when you can import an army of foreign workers to displace American workers, which was, by the way, it was the, the, the folks on the right that wanted that to support what business wanted, go back to what the two parties used to be about. And then the Democrats betrayed their base and said, wait a minute. And this isn't about importing just voters. Everyone keeps saying, oh, they're trying to import voters. Maloney, that's only a tiny part of it. I believe that the Democrat Party is craven to the point that they want to crash the U.S. economy. As my dad told me, if you want to turn a capitalist into a communist, take away his money. And what you're witnessing is the destruction of the middle class. And if you read Orwell, the people in poverty were entertained and kept occupied with booze and pornography. It was the middle class that was the greatest threat to the authoritarian regime in 1984. So it was the middle class that came under the toughest surveillance and suffered the toughest penalties. It's the middle class right now that's being hammered into the ground by Joe Biden and the lunatic left. How can you build back better when you bring in more workers than the number of new jobs you're creating? By the way, the amnesty that he wants, everyone talks about 11 million. That's baloney. Even Yale University said it's at least double that, and that was a couple of years ago. It's probably 30 million. But that means there's no interviews possible, no field investigations, so that opens the door to issues with national security. But what no one wants to talk about is that if they, God forbid, pass that amnesty for 20 or 30 million, whatever the number will be, they will each have an absolute right to bring in every single one of their minor children and their spouses. So this could then become an influx, hold on to your seats, of well over 100 million. How in the world, if you're concerned about the environment and the economy, do you put those two concepts together? Every person here needs food and water and there's droughts in the Midwest. Everyone needs electricity and sewerage and health care. If they're children, they have to go to college. The Congressional Budget Office back in 2006 did a study and estimated it costs 20 to 40 percent more to educate children who are not English proficient. Now, imagine an influx of 100 million minor aliens. They would ultimately be part of the workforce. And we are losing low tech jobs because of artificial intelligence, automation and robotics. So you would wind up with America looking like Venezuela. Uh, I'm not a particularly religious guy, but I'll tell you, I hope you know about the wisdom of Solomon and the two women. Yeah, split the baby. The yeah, offered, yeah, right, with the mother. Yeah. And he knew, Solomon, with his wisdom, knew a true mother would never allow a hair to be harmed on that baby's head. Right. Right? Now, if politics well, hold on, Michael. Hold on. Let's. So, so, if people don't understand, there, there, there were two women that claimed that a baby was theirs because one mother had had given birth and that baby died, and she switched the baby. So they brought. We came to King Solomon, and they both claimed this child. And right. Solomon said, "Okay, I'm going to take a knife and cut the child in half and give you both." And one woman said, "No, no." It's her child. And it was the mother that said that because the mother would rather give up her child right. than see it killed. And I guess you're getting ready to go. If you love this country and you're trying right. to run it, you wouldn't be doing this if you love America. That's right. You would be willing to lose the next election 
if it was the will of the people and in the best interests of our country. And when you think about what Lincoln said about America being the nation of the people, by the people, for the people, no one ever asks a simple question of these politicians. And, you know, it's the art of the question. So here's a simple question. How are your policies, Mr. Biden or Mr. Trump or Mr. Bush? I don't care. How are your policies in the best interests for Americans and for America? Just stop and think of the enormity of that question. We're always told what the quote-unquote immigrants want. By the way, it was Jimmy Carter who, in an Orwellian way, said we're not going to call aliens aliens anymore. We're going to call them immigrants. Because then if you say anything, you're anti-immigrants. And since America was built on immigrants, you're anti-American. By the way, the term alien is a legal term, and legally, under uh, title, uh, it's under Section 101 of the Immigration Nationality Act definitions, an alien is simply defined as any person not a citizen or national of the United States. There's no insult. This is Orwellian. Alter the words, you alter the thoughts and the understanding of issues. But it's remarkable, we hear about the DREAM Act. Now, there's an ultimate nasty irony. The DREAM Act no longer seems to apply to Americans, but they conjure up the American dream for people who shouldn't be here, but everyone has forgotten that Dream Act was an anachronism for um, uh, development, relief, and education of alien minors. So the word alien was acceptable when it was part of the narrative. Suddenly the word alien was embraced to create the Dream Act, development, relief, and education for alien minors. But if you say it, they might knock on your door and put you in handcuffs for uttering hate speech. That's how twisted and perverse this has all gotten. And what we're really witnessing is the destruction of opportunities for Americans. When I was a kid, I worked at a kosher deli, as did most of my friends. We all worked in restaurants. Now we have illegal aliens doing those jobs. And when you go into the poverty-stricken neighborhoods, and I spent lots of time in those neighborhoods Remember, I spent half my career with the drug task force. I've arrested terrorists. My first fraud case caused me to trip over a terror plot in Israel. We prevented the bombing of an oil refinery back in 1976, believe it or not. But if you go through those neighborhoods and you see American children of color, minority kids, living in abject poverty, freezing in the winter, sweltering in the summer, bullets whizzing by the window, rats running through the hallway, not mice, rats. Wow. And you say to yourself, if you're a child and you grow up with that kind of a traumatic background, the issue isn't what would you be willing to do to get out of poverty? What wouldn't you do? And sadly, for all too many kids, the only way out of poverty is crime. And so now you have a conflict with children and law enforcement. When I was a kid, I saw a guy in that blue suit with the badge. I saw a friend. I saw someone I could go to if I had a problem. When you grow up, where you're always outside the law selling stolen property, whatever it is you're doing, you see that blue suit, you run. And what this does is create conflict within the community against law enforcement, and now the lunatics that are trying to crash America are convincing kids that guy in the blue suit is looking to kill you. Not the case, but people will believe anything they're told if you repeat it often enough. That was the principle of the big lie perfected by the Nazis. So a kid gets pulled over by a cop. He's a black kid. He sees the guy in the uniform. His motor is running. And I've done car stops. I had people try to run me down. It's, 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 it's not a safe job, and it's not an easy job, law enforcement. And so if you get out of the car and you're in law enforcement and the guy behind the wheel reacts where he's raised up, as we say, you know, you can see the veins popping in his neck and he's breathing heavy. 
you know this guy might be up to something. So now you're, you know, interacting with him. It has you going into a heightened state of alert. And the next thing you know, a terrible mistake is made and we have a tragedy. Now, we're being told that the solution to any kind of an incident like that is to defund the police. Now, not everybody who wears a badge should have a badge. Not everybody who practices medicine should be practicing medicine. And not everyone who flies an airliner should be behind the controls of an airplane. We make bad decisions sometimes in who we hire. Now, what's remarkable to me is that if you look at how many incidents there are, of shootings of people where they were unjustifiable shootings. And even if it's one, it's unacceptable. I want to be 100% clear. I carried a Mm -hmm. gun and a badge for for decades. I'm thrilled that I never had to fire my weapon except at the range. I came close a couple times. Not a good feeling. I remember those days like it happened yesterday with sweat running down my back like a waterfall. The last thing you want to do is fire a gun at another person or even a dog. I got attacked by a dog. I hit the dog with my gun. I couldn't bring myself to shoot it. It was trying to bite me. Okay? So I hear if you're you. a rational person, you don't want to fire that gun. But if someone does that, we suddenly wind up in this whole big thing. Well, you know, there's only perhaps, and again, I'm using the word only, and it's not really even the word that you should use. There's no onlys about a single death. But if you look at the statistics, we're talking about very few numbers. Do you know how many people, according to Johns Hopkins, die of medical malpractice? This is 19, sorry, 2019. Scary number. Scary number. Let me tell you, the most dangerous place you can go is a hospital. Do you know that Johns Hopkins, I would consider them credible, in 2018, said that in the previous year, over 250,000 people died of medical malpractice. Another university pegged that number at 440,000. Have you ever heard anyone calling for defunding hospitals? No, but just Understand one, the crazy black criminal in a, in a, or a person in, in, in the middle of a crime or having just committed a crime or running from a cop or shooting at a cop. If something goes wrong with that, now we got to defund the whole police. Please tell everybody why. What is the connection between open borders and trying to defund the police? Because this makes no common. This shouldn't make common sense to any American. So, so let me get this straight. We're going to open the borders. Not only will child traffickers come across, not only will they come across with child prostitution, not only will they come across with drugs, not only will they come across with the virus, not only will they come across with bad people, but they're going to come across with terrorists. If the border is open, people who want to blow it up and now let's defund the police and get rid of the police. So when all of this is ushered in like a sore into our country, nobody's there to stop it. Well, you know, again, you mentioned at the beginning that I I gave testimony to the 9-11 Commission. So there was a separate report written by the 9-11 Commission staff. These were the attorneys and federal agents who were assigned to the 9-11 Commission. It was an official government report published by the government printing office. I make that point because this wasn't a tabloid. It wasn't a comic book. This was a second report that the staff said needed to be written and it focused on 9-11 and terrorist travel, how these thugs moved around the world and then entered the United States and embedded themselves, hid themselves in plain, in plain sight. So the preface of that report begins with a very interesting paragraph. This is the preface of that 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. 
There's two points to be made, but let me read the paragraph to begin with. It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they're unable to enter the country. I'm going to just stop for a moment. And I and I and I uh, well, let me continue with this. There's another sentence that goes with this. And, and you have to ask yourself, who has been running national security for America for decades? It starts out by saying it is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they're unable to enter the country. Yet prior to September 11, while there were efforts to enhance border security, no agency of the U.S. government thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. Think about the enormity what? of that statement. What? That's right. That's right. Now, if you are told by the police we have a problem with burglars and home invaders, you're probably going to go to a hardware store and you're going to get new locks. Maybe you'll do what I do. We have a ring on our house. We have cameras all over the place. And, and you're going to take measures to harden your house against the potential of burglars coming into your house to hurt you and rob and so forth, Right. Yes. But now the 9-11 Commission actually said this. It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States that they were able to enter the country at prior to September 11. Well, there were efforts to enhance border security. No agency, no agency of the U.S. government thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. Indeed, even after 19 hijackers demonstrated the relative ease of obtaining a U.S. visa and gaining admission into the United States, border security still is not considered a cornerstone of national security policy. We believe for reasons we discuss in the following pages that it must be made one. Now, let me tell you something. I work with the Speakers Bureau in Washington, D.C. It's a privilege to have been working with them for well over a decade. They do seminars for the military and the intelligence services. And very often the people in the audience, this is in Washington, are members of the military at, at a high level. We're talking about colonels and generals and senior um, civilian employees, whether it's the Air Force or whatever. In fact, two years ago, I was thrilled to find out that one of the people in my audience had just come back from the space station. He's one of our astronauts. He did a couple of spacewalks, and I think it was Ralph Nader was going to speak after I did. And, and Ralph was kind enough to wait about 20 minutes because I wanted to have the opportunity to speak to this astronaut. We took pictures together. It just blew my mind because these guys were my heroes. I went down to the Cape. I saw the last moon launch uh, back in 1973, I believe it was, 72 or 73. So these guys were always my heroes. They did a little single engine flying as a kid. You know, I've always looked up to the astronauts. And what I've said to these military folks, and I said, I want you to think about this. But if you look at immigration, then you look at the military, immigration has a role. The common shared mission of all branches of the armed forces of the United States is to keep the enemies of our country as far from our shores as possible. Whether it was strategic air command, you know, pushing back against enemy airplanes that were flying into our airspace, whether it was our ships at sea on patrol, etc., etc., etc. The military's goal, if you wanted to sum it up, keep our enemy as far from us as possible. Up close and in person, guess who gets that baton? The baton gets passed to the U.S. Border Patrol and ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. You see? And interior enforcement is the critical element that's always been lacking because our government could not possibly be more corrupt. And we'll get to that in a minute. I want to make a couple of points about that. But I can't tell you how many times I've had generals come up to me, Gary, and say, you know, Mr. Cutler, 
you're a hundred percent right, but somehow I never thought of immigration in that way. But of course, that is the issue. Okay, and in, this, in the World War Two movies, you know, it, it was I, the iconic scene of a DC three bouncing through a storm, and there's mm-hmm. lightning flashing, and the commandos are wearing their hard. They got all their weapons and the parachutes, and they jump out. Well, America's enemies are still coming by airplane, but they're not bailing out. They're landing at international airports. Most of the hijackers from 9-11, I believe all of them, flew into an international airport and committed multiple violations of immigration, lying about their identities, lying about political asylum, etc., etc. Same thing in 93, the bombing of the Trade Center. I did my very first hearing on May 20th, 1997, and the topic was visa fraud and immigration benefit fraud because of the 93 attack at the Trade Center and the, and the shooting at the CIA a month earlier by a Pakistani by the name of Kansi. So now I want everyone to understand this. We are a nation of 50 border states, not four border states, any state with an international airport, any state that lies along the northern and southern borders are border states, as are those states that have access to America's 95,000 miles of coastline. Everyone says the immigration system is broken. So let me tell you what. Here's a secret. The immigration system is not broken. I'm going to repeat it again. It is not broken. And Joe Biden is proving it. The immigration system has become a delivery system, folks. And it is so efficient, it eclipses FedEx and UPS combined. And Joe Biden is revving it up more than anybody else. He looks at those aliens and sees gold. He doesn't see a problem. And what does the delivery system deliver? An unlimited supply of cheap, exploitable labor. And it's not just the illegals. Alan Greenspan said that the solution to wage inequality is to make American high-tech workers compete with foreign high-tech workers who would work for much lower wages. And if we could get rid of the wage premium being paid to those American high-tech workers who Greenspan had the chutzpah of referring to as the privileged elite, this piece of work who has mansions all over the place, including the Hamptons, has the chutzpah to talk about middle-class, high-tech workers who have graduate degrees, like my late first wife, may she rest in peace, who was brilliant, Phi Beta Kappa graduate, computer programmer. Greenspan saw her and her colleagues as the enemy, as the problem. Why are they making so much damn money? We can get people from India. And I got into a big discussion, and he said, by the way, if you did this, then you would greatly reduce wage inequality between Americans with skills and those with lesser skills. So in other words, the elevator isn't going up, it's going down, and it's going down quickly. And in fact, I had a major argument with Bob Goodlatte, who was at the time the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee and a Republican. And I said, why aren't you going after what Greenspan said for Chuck Schumer back on April 30th, 2009? I watched that hearing streaming live on my computer. He wouldn't answer me. And then finally he said, listen, he said, first of all, I'm an immigration lawyer. And if you look up Bob Goodlatte, he made a fortune in four states with a multi-state practice that specialized in H-1B visas. Okay. Number two, he told me how his son was so brilliant he would do anything to bring in tens of thousands of brilliant Indian programmers. And I said, really? And what are the Americans? Chop liver? So go look up Bobby Goodlatte. Bobby Goodlatte made a fortune because he started with Zuckerberg at Facebook. And in fact, there was a woman working at the House Judiciary Committee, where I've testified numerous times, who is of Indian ancestry. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't care where you come from. I'm of Polish-Russian ancestry. We are America. We are the most diverse country on the planet. 
But to specifically say that your goal is to flood America with foreign programmers, principally from India, when we have American kids ready, willing and able to do the job, when we've had thousands, if not millions of Americans fired so that people from India and other countries could replace them. Walt Disney did that. I won't go to Disney World if they gave me free time. I wouldn't go to Disney World if they paid me. They fired all their IT people and replaced them with foreign workers and made them train their replacements if they wanted their severance package. Michael, you know what this is. You know what this is. This is the attempt at globalism, and that's yes. what this is about. Now, here's what I have to ask you, because this is the final question. Thank you for coming way, on. Uh, before you, before you interrupt, I, I just want to make one point, because you got to understand. They started to say it's a delivery system. So it delivers an unlimited supply of cheap, exploitable labor, an unlimited supply of foreign tourists. That's why Reagan gave us the visa waiver program to placate the Chamber of Commerce. Even after 9-11, it expanded. It should have ended. But the big deal an unlimited supply of clients for immigration law firms. And when you flood America with people, the price of housing goes through the roof. Wages are in decline. Americans are losing their jobs. And how? What, what's the obvious result? Homelessness. But the globalists will tell you all, all those people that are homeless are crazy and drug addicts. And there are among them people who have mental problems and so forth. But how many people lost their jobs? Dan Rather did a report. Go look for it online or look for my articles at Front Page Magazine or um, U.S. Incorporated. Um, and Dan Rather did a documentary just about 10 years ago called No Thanks for Everything, where he interviewed, I believe it was four programmers who had master's degrees, graduated with honors, were working in the industry for decades and were unceremoniously fired after getting great revaluations because they wanted to bring in cheap labor from India. This is what so we're facing. what's happening. Yes. yes this is, no, but now you got to do this. You've told us we understand the problems. Give us a solution. The solution is interior enforcement. And, and the problem is sanctuary cities. We now have a sanctuary country because let me tell you something. We hear about catch and release, right? They arrest these people. They turn them loose. The police practices catch and release. Have you ever gotten a speeding ticket or a moving violation, Gary? You don't know. Uh, yes, unfortunately. When I was a kid, I was a lead foot. I had a Jag Roadster. I was getting pulled over a lot. OK, so you got a ticket. Did they arrest you? No. Can the cop arrest you? Yes, he can. I helped Arizona with the lawsuit over SB 1070. And that was my arg one of my arguments. If a cop stops somebody uh, as a member, part of his or her routine patrol, they need to know who they're dealing with, the risk of flight and, and danger to the community. So, so the bottom line is that they do catch and release when they give you a summons. And yet, for the most part, people show up. Why? Because there's consequences. There's consequences. What are the consequences? Well, you don't show up. They're going to come to your house. They're going to either arrest you. They might seize your vehicle. They might suspend your driver's license. With no interior enforcement, guess what happens? Catch and release. Okay, you have a court date. We don't even know what the guy's name is. We don't know who he is. Everyone keeps talking about terror watch list. Very few terrorists are on the terror watch list. Most of them are unknown. That's what a sleeper agent is. You also need to know that throughout Latin America right now, you have Hezbollah, Middle East terror organization that is funded and directed by Iran, operating with human traffickers throughout Latin America to flood drugs and people into the United States for monetary purposes. It's very uh, lucrative to destroy our society, and drugs is doing one hell of a job on our society, but to also be able to bring in terrorists and sleeper agents. When you see everything going on on the border, under the bridge, 
Um, people say, oh, my God, the Border Patrol. The Border Patrol is being tied up. It's like the Calais deception during the Second World War. We convinced the Germans who were coming through Calais, not through Normandy. They had to divide their forces, and that's why we succeeded. Today, the Calais deception are the aliens being caught by the Border Patrol, while the real bad guys and the drugs and everything else are flowing through other parts of the border because the Border Patrol is overwhelmed. But the bottom line is interior enforcement. And the way that George W. Bush created DHS was a violation of the Homeland Security Act. They were never supposed to divide immigration and customs enforcement away from Mm -hmm. border enforcement. And they were never supposed to fold in all these other agencies. I was working with members of Congress unofficially, but I was having meetings. We were on the phone. I was down in Washington. They were looking for my help. And I said, you need the law enfor- the immigration law enforcement tripod. I actually testified about this before the Immigration Reform Caucus six weeks after 9-11. I was removed as an agent the next morning ostensibly because I had injured my leg in the line of duty, making arrests with the FBI and New York City Police Department. It was my knee. It wasn't my head. It wasn't my hands. I could still think, read, write. I could do everything. I'm just not great at chasing people, okay? So they said, no, 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 you're not physically able to do the job. It's time for you to go. Um, it-, it was amazing. And I talked about the pipe, the tripod. The inspectors enforce the laws at ports of entry. The Border Patrol enforces the laws between ports of entry, but it's the special agents that are the most critical. Because an alien who's determined to enter the country will get here. You know, I I think I asked you yesterday off air, how many times does it take an alien to, to run the border before they succeed in coming to America? And if you're wondering, folks, the answer is one more than the number of times they're caught. So if they're really determined, they're going to get here. But once they get here, nothing happens. That was why Bush did what he did. That's why he talks about America, the Republican Party, being nativists. I'm a nativist. I admit it. A nativist, if you look it up, is someone who puts the needs and concerns of the citizens ahead of immigrants. We do that. And it's not about race. Because America is the most diverse country on the planet. So Bush purposely torpedoed immigration enforcement after the attacks of 9-11 when it was clear to everybody that 9-11 was only possible because of multiple failures of the immigration system that he did not want to fix. That's why his brother Jeb said that illegal immigration was an act of love. And I wrote an article where I said that Jeb was looking for love in all the wrong places. Okay, to understand interior enforcement is so critical. Airplanes are not being used in terror attacks. I don't know of a single airplane used since 9-11 in a successful terror attack. What are they using? Motor vehicles. And what are we doing in places like New York and Illinois and California and New Jersey and Pennsylvania? We're giving driver's licenses to illegal aliens. In 1993, there was a shooting at the CIA by a Pakistani by the name of Kansi who bought into a courier van service. He had a permit to park in the parking lot of the CIA in January 93. He pulled into the parking lot, jumped out with an AK-47, opened fire, killed two CIA agents, wounded three others and fled. The bombing at the Trade Center in 93, one month later, an illegal alien, a status violator, he violated his visa, rented the van. Another illegal alien status violator drove the van. When you look at terror attacks around the world, they almost always use Trucks, cars, motor vehicles, either to run people down or as a way of delivering the terrorists to the location that they want to attack. And people, what I hope doing? you're listening here, Mike. I, you know, you, you, you're, you've delivered. <laughs> but I hope people are listening. You've given them the problems. You've given them a solution. 
And I hope everybody's listening and to take what Mike Cutler is telling you and take it into your communities, into your circle of influence, because people need to know this is what we're up against. Mike, I really appreciate you coming on. Please tell people how they can reach you and anything that you'd like to promote. And I'm looking forward to bringing you back. Anytime you want me, I'm here for you. I've been a man on a mission even before 9-11. Uh, my, my own personal website, obviously, it's my favorite, is Michael Cutler, C-U-T-L-E-R, michaelcutler.net. I do a blog talk radio show Friday night, 7 o'clock East Coast time, the Michael Cutler Hour. I write for Front Page Magazine, frontpagemag.com. I also write for usinc.org, US Incorporated. Uh, you know, by the way, for clarity, the difference between an immigrant and an illegal alien is comparable to the difference between a house guest and a burglar. We are the most generous country in the world, but it's the immigrant community that's most likely to suffer violence when criminal aliens, and it's not just from Latin America, that's nonsense, human nature is human nature. I've arrested people from all over the world, but the people they live among are at, most, at, at the greatest risk, and who do they live among? Members of the immigrant community. To say it's anti-immigrant to enforce the immigration laws is as crazy as saying it's anti-motorist to take drunk drivers off the road. This is about a, making sure that our country is safe and secure and prosperous. And the immigration laws, I just want to make this point. Please go to Title Eight, United States Code Section 1182. It tells you who we're keeping out. Not a word about race or religion or ethnicity. Aliens with dangerous communicable diseases. Think where we are now. Mental illness, aliens who are criminals and terrorists and spies and human traffickers and drug smugglers. Aliens who would become a public charge or if they work would displace American workers and drive down wages. I want to understand how anybody could claim to be looking out for America or Americans and seek to block the enforcement of our immigration laws. That's a lie. We need to call them out. Mike, you have nailed it to the wall. Thank you for coming on. You're always welcome to come back, and I will bring you back on the show. Keep up the good fight. Mr. Mike Cutler, everybody, he dropped all kind of truth here. And he he was in there, been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, arrested a whole bunch of guys and is alive to tell about it. And please take this seriously, because this is a huge, huge problem in our country. And if the Biden administration has its way, it'll get even worse than it is now. I want to thank my guests, Sheriff David Clark, Ron Vitello, and Mike Cutler for positively and passionately setting straight the record in regard to the attack against law enforcement, as well as the uncontrolled situation at our southern border. We can't let these radical leftists pull off this insidious daily double. We've got to rise up and be heard. Make our votes count at the polling places. Get politicians out of office who support these atrocities while we still have time to do so. Well, that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. Hope you had a great time hanging out with us. The next podcast will air on Tuesday, October 26th, when the guests are Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, Mike Lindell, Mr. MyPillow himself, conservative business journal founder John DeLemme, talk show host Lucretia Hughes, and political activist Sean Farish, who will break down what we the people can do to help save America. 
This podcast is available for download at RadioInfluence.com or wherever you get your favorite podcast. Hope you'll subscribe to it, leave a rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends about the show. So until the next episode, this is your host, Gary Benford, saying, God bless you, God bless your families, and God bless America.